0: Good morning, church family. Um, Just from me, thank you so much for your prayers these last few weeks. You know, um, we haven't been well. And uh, so I'm I'm glad to be back. We wouldn't miss this Sunday for the world. Um, I might have just come to risk getting all of you sick, even if I wasn't feeling a little better. But I'm not quite 100%, so you might notice a little scratchiness um, or that my voice is in a different register than lower uh, than normal. so I've got my tea up here. I've got a throat lozenge, and I'm going to try not to lose my voice. Um, but bear with me if I do, okay? I hope that's not distracting for you. I feel better than I sound. Okay, I want you to know that. Uh, so uh, last week, Paul covered the triumphal entry for us. And then Friday night, Scott told us about the crucifixion. My job today is to, to bring us understanding of the resurrection I don't usually give my sermons a title, and today I didn't either, but the question I've been asking myself these last few weeks leading up to Easter is this, what was accomplished in the resurrection? What was accomplished in the resurrection? I'm just going to warn you, today's sermon is not going to be a typical Resurrection Sunday sermon. And so, because today is not going to be a typical Resurrection Sunday sermon, let's review a few of the things that did happen with the resurrection, just so we're not incomplete. We know that the resurrection was a sign that God had accepted Jesus' perfect sacrifice for sin, that the sin of all of God's chosen people had been sufficiently paid in that transaction. Every legitimate transaction has what? It has a receipt a proof that the thing was paid for, right? The resurrection is the receipt of the transaction that took place. That's why the individual believer's Christian faith includes confession that Jesus is Lord and a belief in what? That God raised him from the dead. That's Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When we need proof that the Christian religion is true, the resurrection is where we point, isn't it? If it's not, it should be. Just like when you need to prove a transaction took place, you present the receipt. Do you know, beloved, that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the most verifiable events in all of human history? Think about this. Hundreds of eyewitnesses. Multiple historical documents written about it by those very same witnesses. Thousands and thousands of accurate manuscripts, copies of those books, many of them dating to within mere decades of the original writing, and we have those copies. And they all agree about the facts. What other historical event has that level of documentation? I would challenge you to find one and then if that wasn't enough proof those writers, the apostles almost all of them suffered torture or died horrible deaths because of their testimony to the truth of what they'd seen they were sticking to their story what man do you know who would be willing to be tortured or die violently just so his conspiracy could go on after he was dead not any of you Not me, for sure. The historical truthfulness of the resurrection stands up to all forms of scrutiny done in good faith. Honest examination and criticism of this event through any reasonable lens, other than one of abject disbelief, will lead the examiner to conclude that the resurrection must be true. So why doesn't everyone believe it? Why doesn't everyone believe it? Romans 1 says it's because we don't want to. In our rebellion against God, we suppress the truth, even though we know deep down that it's true. It's like a a spring that wants to spring up, and you have to keep pushing it down to keep it down. We have to keep wrestling with it so it'll stay down, so it won't spring up and bother us. No matter how obvious he makes it, we don't believe because we love our sin and we hate him and we don't want his truth to be true. So that's one of the aspects of the resurrection. It's the receipt for the transaction that took place. When we need proof that our sin has been paid for and that we're in good standing with God, we point at the empty tomb. God accepted the sacrifice. And that's the proof. What else was accomplished in the resurrection? God showed his power over death. He showed himself to be not only the author of life, but one who can reverse the irreversible. We know that at the resurrection, Satan's plans were confounded, and not only that, he was defeated. The fulfillment of that ancient prophecy from the very early chapters Of Genesis, that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Our scripture reading a little while ago told us that the resurrection was the proof that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, will return to judge the world with justice. We could go on and on and on about how so many necessary elements of God's master plan for salvation for the human race were accomplished at the resurrection. But today I want to zoom out and look at the big picture, even bigger than the plan of salvation, bigger than your sin being paid. Christian, did you know that there's something more glorious than that? Did the resurrection do do all those things that we talked about? Yes, it did, but it did something else too. So to return to the question that I asked a moment ago what was accomplished when Christ was raised from the dead? What was the grandest purpose even the cosmic purpose of the resurrection of the Lord? As I've been meditating on this the last few weeks I found the answer in Colossians chapter 1. That's going to be our text for today. Let's turn there and read it together. If you're visiting or unfamiliar with where that might be in your pew Bible, just ask one of your neighbors. They'll be happy to show you. While you're turning there, I'll give you the context for the passage. Colossians is a letter by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Colossae in Asia Minor. Unlike many of the other churches he wrote letters to, Paul did not visit Colossae on a missionary journey prior to writing this letter to them. Paul did not plant... The church there. In the beginning of chapter 1, Paul talks about how he heard of their faith and that their church had been established by the preaching of another missionary, Epaphras. So Paul opens his letter rejoicing in the good news that the Colossians had come to faith and then telling them that he's been praying for them for the following things. You can read through these in the first section. We'll just skim through and summarize. Here's what he wants for this church. <clears throat> Here's what he wants for this church. That they would be filled with the knowledge of God and spiritual wisdom. That they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and be pleasing to him. That they would bear fruit in good works. That they would be strengthened according to God's might. That they would possess endurance and patience and joy. That they would live a life of thankfulness to God in light of their new status as members of the kingdom of their new Lord Jesus, under whom they are no longer subject to the darkness of sin and death. And then starting in verse 15, Paul begins to describe Jesus. Because in order to do all these things, that list that we just read, these Christian believers need to be grounded somewhere. This King Jesus that they're under now, who is he? They have to know him and understand him to really live their Christian lives. Do we need these things too? Of course we do. And so for us, to grow in our knowledge of God and our wisdom about what exactly God accomplished in the resurrection today, we're going to try and understand Jesus' preeminence. Let's read our text. Colossians 1, starting with verse 15, Paul is describing the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, holy God, we pray that you would dwell among us this morning. We pray that you would visit us in the exhortation of your word. We pray that you might be exalted. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want you to understand this whole book of Colossians is a very practical book. Lots of explicit instructions and prescriptive text for Christian believers and the Christian church. For households, for husbands and wives, for business owners, for servants. But these five verses right here are the thesis. The foundation upon which all the other instructions rest. The thing that they will point back to whenever necessary. Verse 15, he, that being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What does it mean to be the image of the invisible God? We were just singing about this. We could preach on this for months and never really complete the study. But just a few texts to help us understand. God is a spirit. John 4:24 tells us that God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. What do we mean when we say something is spiritual? It means it's not material. It doesn't have a body. God does not have a physical body. He's an omnipresent spirit. He's everywhere, all at once. Furthermore, in order to be perceived physically, God takes on physical forms so that we may look upon him. For the children of Israel in Exodus, he took on the form of a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. For Moses... He appeared in a burning bush. But understand that he's not like us. His nature cannot be looked upon with the human eye. He must manifest in order for us to see him. In 1 Timothy twice in chapter 1 and in chapter 6, Paul describes God as immortal and invisible, one whom nobody can look upon. So when John chapter 1 tells us the word took on flesh and dwelt among us, Talking about Jesus, what does it mean? It was necessary in order for God to make himself known to take on human flesh. Jesus says later in John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. God taking on human flesh is God expressing himself to us in a visible, physical way that we can see, touch, taste, hear, smell, and experience firsthand. But when we say that God the Son took on human flesh, do we understand that God's nature didn't change? This is called the doctrine of the hypostatic union. The what? The hypostatic union. What does that mean? It means that two natures, one human and one divine, were permanently joined in the person of Jesus Christ. Two natures in one person. This is why Jesus must be a descendant of Adam in the line of David, born of a human woman but also why his conception must have been immaculate and he must be born of a virgin, a divine nature and a human nature, the Son of God and the Son of Man together in one glorious person of Jesus Christ. Putting it simply, you and I are 100% human. Jesus was not half man and half God, but fully God and fully man, 200%. I bet you didn't think you were getting a theology lesson today. last part of verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. Let's correct an error in thinking here. This is the verse that heretics, cults, and false religions will use to tell you that Jesus is not God, but rather a created being. That's not what it means. Firstborn of all creation doesn't mean he's part of creation. They want to take that verse and put the emphasis on the word creation, but that's not where the emphasis is. Emphasis is not on the creation, but rather on the firstborn. Firstborn in biblical language is a status. It means the heir, the one of primary importance, the pride and joy of the one to whom he is son. The two natures in one person of Jesus Christ are the firstborn in the sense that he is the one who delights his father, and he is the one who's receiving the inheritance. He is the one of primary importance. And so here in verse 15, we get our first clue about what God accomplished in the resurrection. Are you confused yet? Good, let's keep going. Read verse 16. Paul says, all things were created by him. Let's, Let's go ahead and read it. I'm sorry, I skipped that part. Verse 16. For by him, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Paul says all things were created by him. We quoted John 1 earlier, most of you know this. Describing the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God who would take on flesh and join his divine nature to a human nature in the person of Jesus Christ, it says, through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that was made. Do we understand that all of creation depended on His power and His presence to be created? God the Son in eternity past with His Father and the Holy Spirit determining in the perfect divine counsel of the Trinity to make this universe and everything in it? What does it mean when it says in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible? It means not just the material, but also the immaterial. Not just the atoms in nature, but also the laws that govern them. But not just that, there's more. Every institution, every idea are created by him. Paul gives examples. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. What does this include? Sure, your kings and presidents, obviously. But everything else too. Your manager at work and the organization over which that person has control. Your family unit led and provided for and protected by a husband and father, nurtured and sustained by a mother's love, care, and intuition. The institution of marriage, the idea of one man and one woman joining together and becoming one flesh. What else? Everything invisible. The pleasure you enjoyed on your wedding night. The joy of holding your child in your arms for the first time. The cries that came out of their mouth. The sensation of biting into a perfectly seasoned medium rare New York steak. The angels and the demons, the most beautiful song you've ever heard. The nerve endings that warn you of an injury to your skin, knee and the scab that forms there. The white blood cells that seek and destroy intruders to your body. The microbacteria that might live at the bottom of a subterranean ocean in another solar system. He made all of it. And all of it was made through him. Visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Wait, for him? What does that mean? He's elaborating on that first clue, isn't he? He's the firstborn, he's the heir. And now we see all things are not just created by him and through him, but also for him. What's he going to inherit? All things. All things, Romans 11.36 says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It means that every single, pers- pe- every single piece of this universe, visible and invisible, every atom, every idea, every institution, and every single immortal soul, all of us gathered here and all around the world, they're from him and for him. They are his. They belong to him. Verse 17. Verse 17. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. What, there's even more? Not only is it all because of him and all for his benefit, his possession, it's also sustained by him. He's the one who maintains it. Do we understand this? We read this in our scripture reading earlier. In his sermon at the Oropagus, in Acts 17, Paul says starting with verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. There's God being an invisible spirit again. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from one of us, from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. If you look in your study Bible at verse 28, where it says, in him we live and move and have our being, it looks like a quotation of another passage, doesn't it? But it's not. Did you know Paul is not quoting Holy Scripture there, but a Greek philosopher? Even the secular wisdom, such as it is, belongs to him. Not only did he make the world and everything in it, he appoints the times and seasons of the earth and the life of every individual who walks upon it, our purposes, our limits. He gives to us life and breath, and in him we move and have our being. The breath that you just took is because he gifted it to you. Your finger only traces the words on the page of your Bible because in his purposes he ordained that it would. My voice sounds like this this week because that's how he wrote my story. We said earlier that he's the foundation for the Christian life, but you're starting to see a little bit, I think, he's more than that. He's before all things. He's the foundation upon which everything rests. He is the precondition to anything else existing. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Do you remember the question we asked at the beginning? What was accomplished in the resurrection? Like I said earlier, I don't usually give my sermons a title but if I was going to title this one I would call it the cosmic purpose of the resurrection because you see there is a more glorious thing that happened in the resurrection than simply all the building blocks necessary for us to have salvation because our salvation ultimately isn't about us is it do we benefit yes we do yes we do In his generosity, he gives us something so glorious and so undeserved to save us from our sin and give us a new life. But why, on a grander level, why did the resurrection happen? Why was he raised from the dead? It was so that in everything he might be preeminent. What is preeminence? Well, literally, we understand it means first. I can't pronounce the Greek word being used here. I I tried, but I can tell you it has the word proto in it. It not only means the one that is first sequentially, it also means the one that is primary. It can be used to mean the one that gets honor because he's the most important. We understand this now already from the rest of the passage, don't we? He's the source of all, of creation. Everything proceeds from him. Without him, nothing would exist at all. Did you notice something? It called him the firstborn again, didn't it? Does it simply mean he's the first person to ever be resurrected from the dead? No, that's not what it means. That's easily demonstrable. There were other people who'd been miraculously raised from the dead in the Bible prior to Christ. We don't need to review those. We know who they are. So what does it mean? The word firstborn is our clue. It means he's the primary one, the one of highest rank, of greatest importance. But it's also a different kind of resurrection from the dead. Let's try to understand this. Turn to First Corinthians fifteen. First Corinthians fifteen, starting with verse twenty. Read through verse 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Amen. Does this shed light on it? Here again, Paul's describing Jesus sequentially as the first one to be raised from the dead. Well, that's not literally right. So what does it mean? We have to zoom out. Paul's talking about the status of all of creation. Not just mankind, but all of creation. He's making a distinction between two universes. Kenneth isn't here today, but he would call it two paradigms. The first universe is the one in which Adam is still the head. And a sacrifice for sin has not taken place. Redemption has not occurred and eternal life is not possible. Satan rules and death is final. And all of that creation is groaning because it's hopeless. But there's another universe. One in which Christ is the head. This is the universe that exists after he's atoned for sin. Redemption has occurred and eternal life is available. A creation in which Satan is a defeated foe and death has no hold on the ones God chooses. That creation is still groaning, but only because the final judgment hasn't come yet. However, it no longer groans in hopelessness. To be preeminent, must he not be the first one raised to life in a creation where perfect redemption has taken place? Furthermore, is not his resurrection dependent on his own power to do so? In John 10, Jesus says, I have the authority to lay down my life and the authority to take it up again. In John 11, Jesus tells Mary, the sister of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So what does it mean that he's the firstborn from the dead so that in everything he might be preeminent? Are you starting to put it together? Just as he is the necessary precondition to anything existing at all, he is also the necessary precondition to a new creation in which there is not just life, but redeemed eternal life. This goes back to a really big question, doesn't it? Every Christian has to wrestle with this. Why let Adam and Eve sin in the first place? Why not just make sure they didn't sin in the Garden of Eden and let everything be happy forever without interruption? Because he gets more glory this way. Him writing the story of a creation that falls and is redeemed by his own selfless love maximizes his glory. Do you see it? Do we understand this? Could he have just written a story where we never sinned in the first place? I don't think he would. Because he gets more glory this way. Jesus is more, is more exalted in a fallen people who are redeemed and love their Savior and who will be made perfect in imitation of him than he is in mere perfect humans who never needed any saving. Why do we get eternal life? So we can enjoy him eternally. Yes, that's true. But also because that's how long it's going to take for us to comprehend and understand his glory. There's no end to the wonders of our Savior. Do we understand that this whole story is about him. It always has been. It's not about us, and it never has been. I don't like to talk about myself, but I'm going to tell you a story and be vulnerable for a few minutes. The other night I was up late, later than I should have been, and I was scrolling through Facebook videos, and a Paul Washer video came up. Watch out for those. Paul Washer was describing an encounter he had with an atheist who asked him, How can the sacrifice of one man atone for the sin of all men? Good question, right? Even if the atheist meant it for evil? And then Paul Washer went on to describe the value of the Son of God. His absolute, infinite, incomprehensible value. Every mountain, every beautiful song, every pleasant sensation, every precious metal, every human soul Every star and every planet and every corner of the cosmos. He's worth more than all of it. It absolutely crushed me. All I could do was weep and tremble before the value of the Lord Jesus. The only prayers I could offer were pathetic, incomprehensible, two- and three-word mumblings. You think about Isaiah when he saw the Lord sitting on the throne. And the train of his robe fills the whole temple and he's surrounded by smoke and these angels that cover their eyes and say, holy, 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 because they can't even look at him. Have you ever felt that? I know you have. Has he ever revealed himself to you in such a way? I pray for you that he will. Do you know why I want that crushing weight to fall on each of you? Because it makes your priorities right. It's clarifying. When we understand this, we won't struggle with whether it's worth it to witness to our neighbor. He's worth it. The next time you're running late for your doctor visit or your appointment, and God makes a more important appointment for you, I'm sorry, a more important appointment for you, and you meet some some distraught person in a parking lot, or a hopeless gas station attendant, or a stinky, unpleasant homeless person, You won't ask yourself whether it's worth it that you run late because the chance to glorify him with your witness is worth it. He's worth it. His glory is worth it. You know what makes your afflictions light when you're suffering? Your kids got sick and they kept you up all night. Ask me about that. Or you had a financial disaster. Ask me about that. Or your cancer came back. Or the people in power are ruining your great country. Or your pastor died. Or your dad. When we have these things happen, we find ourselves asking, why? Don't we? We know why. He's told us why. All things work together for our good and for what? What? Tell me. Glory. That's right. For his glory. He's writing the story to maximize his own glory. Is he worthy of it? Do you know that's where our problem is? Is That we don't think he's worthy of it. Or just because we simply don't believe him. Do you know why all I could do was weep and tremble? Because I was repenting of that. I'm still repenting of it. I pray that each of you will see even the smallest glimpse of his beauty and his worth and that it would crush you and cause you to weep and tremble and offer pathetic two and three word prayers because he is to be preeminent in all things. And especially in the lives of his precious church of whom he is the head. Verses 19 and 20. Back in Colossians. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. With the goal of maximizing his own glory a goal that he is certainly accomplishing, it pleases him to take on human flesh and dwell with us and to redeem a people for himself and by his own blood bring peace to a groaning creation. This gospel in which God redeems a people for himself is the same for all people who are called by him to be saved. The Old Testament saints who believed God looked forward to the day when this redemption would be fulfilled. We New Testament saints look backward to the crucifixion and resurrection as the historical fulfillment of those promises. We all look forward to the day when all of his redeemed saints will be gathered together to worship him perfectly and give him glory in all eternity. Beloved people, If you've never repented of your sin and believed this good news, repent and believe now. People in hell will glorify God forever as an eternal display of his justice and wrath against those who did not acknowledge his perfection and love him for it in this life. And he deserves that glory too. But it's better for you to see his perfection and his beauty His incomprehensible worth. And desire to glorify him as one of his redeemed saints. To desire him and wish to be with him rather than apart from him. Sin keeps you apart from him. But you can be reconciled to him and have peace with him by the blood of Jesus' cross. Please don't go another day lost and apart from him. He's worth it. Close again with the verse we read earlier Romans 10 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy. We confess that you must be preeminent in all things. That you must be first. That you must be primary. We confess that we are your inheritance. And we would not be a very good one. Except that you redeem us to yourself. Lord, make us new. Make us holy. Make us glorify you. May you be exalted. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.